You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, how are you? You're such a D-bag sometimes. Why is that? Okay, so you're on location. You're in Italy. I'm actually looking at I'm looking at you like splayed out on what looks like a very old um, Italian chaise. And I don't know. It's, you, a, it's a settee. You got a little bit of like the Kate Winslet vibe from Titanic. Like I think you're going to get ready to ask me to paint you like one of uh, Jack's French girls. I hope you do. Oh God. Okay, where are you? Uh, I am. I'm in Montefalco, uh, in, a, in a in a crazy large room for one person. I think they could have put four of us in here. And oh, I'm tasting uh, Sagrantino Spoletino, Trebbiano Spoletino. Sorry. Um, yeah, and uh, Montefalco Rosso. And have you learned anything? Well, I, this is my third time here, and um, I have to be honest. Before I, I'm looking forward to the next leg of my journey, okay? Um, uh, which is Orvieto and uh, Tresemina. But I, although I always get that wrong, so it's either Tresemina or Tresemino or Tresamino. I can't, I can't get it. But I'll talk about that in a in a, in a minute. But I, I really love Montefalco. I, I I know that you and I have tried. Uh, Sagrantino wines. Yes. Um, and they are brutal on on the tongue. Absolutely brutal. I, I remember, um, do, I do remember enjoying them, but I do remember the the, the tannin. Like, I think it's a toss-up yeah. between Cahor and Sagrantino as to who make the more tannic wines. Oh, it's Sagrantino for sure. So Sagrantino the grape is one of the most tannic uh, grapes in the world. Okay. So it, it's, it's brutal... Um, so I tried all of the reds and all of the whites over the last two days. I also visited a couple of wineries. Um, I've tasted probably, if I'm not mistaken, about 150 wines. Um, and, and I did one of the craziest things that I did was, um, so this year they had two tasting booklets. One of them was, uh, you could try the 47, uh, wines that were in preview, which were the 2018s, or there was 140 wines that you could taste uh, that were what they called on the market. Um, okay. And, uh, so I went through. So I went through the book, and and the first day I did all the reds from the on the market booklet, and then I decided to do all 47 uh, preview wines in in my good, better, best approach. Uh, you know what what the potential for these wines are because these are just baby wines. Let's be honest; they are not uh, wines that are ready in any shape or form. They need at least you know ten or fifteen years to be to be ready. And uh, I, I I asked one of the sommeliers to so I said, "Do me a favor and bring me the next six wines in this." When I'm at number five, bring me the next six or at least start getting them ready. And she did. And uh, she was wonderful. Her name was uh, Federica. And uh, she just she just kept her eye on me. And every when I hit number five, she'd get the wines. She'd bring them over. By then, I was at number six. She'd pour them. I'd taste them. And 47 wines in 30 minutes. 
And uh, at the end of it, she said to me, "You're brave." Or stupid. I mean that uh, we got to look it up. We got to look it up whether brave or stupid are, are similar. Um, well, that's synonyms. what I said to her. It's exactly the thing I said to her. I said, "No, this is stupidity." She goes, "No, this is brave." I go, "You say tomato, I say tomato." That's hilarious. Okay, okay. Um, I want to talk like more about the ins and outs, like some highlights or just some other things. But I, I think there's a lot of people in the podcast who are listening, who listen to the podcast, who do tasting or frequent tastings. I know just know there's a lot of industry professionals that listen to the podcast. Um, I remember my first time going to I4C, and this was like before I went full down the Chardonnay rabbit hole, but I knew that I loved it. And I remember about 20 wines in at the media room. Like I, I remember I have 10 excellent tasting notes. I have 10 mediocre t- tasting notes. And then after that point, the wines all just tasted the same. And we're also dealing with, we're dealing with a white wine that is very approachable, has low tannin. You know, the worst that you're dealing with is uh you know maybe lingering finish lingering notes from from wood tannin or or lingering lingering notes from lower acid blah 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 um how do you how do you prepare your palate or how do you just cope with tasting with a wine that is more aggressive on the palate and more aggressive to to deal with when you're tasting all those wines all at once uh basically you know, I, I, there used to be a guy, and, and I, I, and I don't know if you were ever in the the room at the LCBO. Um, it, uh, I think his name was Woody, or at least that's what everybody called him. And he drank milk in between wine tastings. Okay, he was a doctor, and I just always found the milk thing really weird. I do too. Um, you know, and and there's other tasters that you and I have seen who do bread and crackers to try and soak up some of that stuff. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm in the camp where just keep tasting until you can't taste anymore. Okay. Um, and, and, and I, I thankfully am still fairly young, uh, that I can get a good, you know, a good hundred wines, maybe 150 wines in before the palate fatigue creeps in. Um, I'm, I'm sure that as you get older that, you know, I, I, I know I probably could have done 200 wines at one point. Uh, I think 150 probably is my, my limit in a day now. Uh, and I, I, sadly, as I get older, it's going to be the same thing. You know, I'm going to drop to 140, 130. Um, but I, I just keep going, uh, until, um, you know, I'm, I'm done with the tasting. Thankfully it's not a huge tasting. Uh, here uh, in total, there was 193 wines, okay. and I spread them out over two days. Okay, but I did I did whites today, uh, and I did reds the first day. Is this is this what you're at? Is this what the Italians call an anteprima? It is an anteprima. Yes, this is the anteprima sagrantino. So I also I also find it fascinating too because I know it's one thing that um, I think it's actually one of the, the bits of advice that has really stuck with me as well. I love doing barrel tasting. I love doing uh, tank samples. And, you know, having done that as a journalist in the past, I think has been very helpful with me dealing with the ADX wine company. Like I know tasting off the tank, tasting off the barrel, like that's something that I have to do now. And that's something that, you know, I definitely defer to the expertise of Adam, the winemaker and, you know, having Vadim around as as well. I defer to the expertise of people who know a lot more about tasting an unfinished wine and seeing where it goes. But from a journalistic standpoint, I do agree with you that it's it's a challenge to 
um, you know, fully fin- like write a finished tasting note because there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong in three, six, twelve months with um, but between barrel tasting and and bottling. Granted, in the hands of most well-known and competent winemakers and good producers, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. So I know you said that about half the wines were presented like as tank samples, right? Uh, I would I would go more of a th- a third a third. Okay, so like, what do you do with the tank samples? Is there any any benefit to you since you you've I guess sort of switched to a good, better, best system? Is there uh, like just give me some insight into your methodology and, and what you're looking for when you're tasting here? So I'm looking for a wine that's going to be uh, relatively a- approachable. These are baby wines; they're they're so young. As uh, as uh, so, what we also did during this time period is we went to see some some other wineries, and it was it was pretty funny when one of the uh, one of the um, uh, tasting room people said, um, "I know this is going to sound wrong, but this is like killing a baby." And yes, it sounds really wrong, but it kind of is. Like you're opening a bottle of wine that that you know, easily is going to last 10, 15, 20 years. And you've opened it at, at a point where it's, you know, it's been in bottle for you know a couple of years, but I mean, it's not in any way, shape or form ready. Um, so you have to kind of look by those tannins and wonder. Uh, and I think the 18 uh, vintage for Sagrantino uh, shows a lot of elegance. Um, and I think there are quite a few winemakers who are learning to, um, finally get a hold of those tannins and make some of these wines a little more approachable early, which I think is important. Uh, because, you know, I think Sagrantino runs, you know, 30, 40, $50 in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not, they're not a cheap wine. Mm-mm. And if you're going to be drinking these wines or buying these wines anyway, you know, it's an investment into your future. But I also think you should be able to hopefully drink at least one of them in a year, two years, three years. And I think that there are some winemakers who are realizing that, yes, we have to get these into glasses sooner. Um, they can't, I don't think they can do anything about the alcohol. They are all worried about global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these wines uh, are in the 16, 16 and a half percent. And they Holy can't crap. do anything about that. But they can try to tame those tannins, and that's one of the things that they are really looking into. Interesting. Okay. And at sixteen and a half percent, are you getting balanced wines? Uh, that's. I think that's one of the scariest parts. Is that um, like I'll, I'll give you uh, just a, an example of a of a of a, a Montevalco Rosso that I tried from a winery called Bocale. Um, they like I was drinking this wine. And um, and I got about halfway down the bottle, and I was feeling a little on the woozy side. I was like, "Wow, that's uh, you know, this is what's happening to my head." And um, this because uh, I tried it back in uh, back in in um, Saint Catharines, and I was talking to the winemaker, and I said, "I looked at your bottle at that point, and I saw that it was fifteen percent just for a rosso. So a rosso basically is Sangiovese Merlot." And Sagrantino, of which the Sagrantino is basically only twenty five percent. That's the maximum they can put in. Interesting. And I said to him, 
um, you know, what's the chance that that 15% is actually more? He said, probably very good. <laughs> so, you know, they have that 1% variant that we can, that, that, that everyone can do. And, you know, they're, they're, they know that they, they, they have to try and put the lowest alcohol they can get away with. And if that lowest alcohol is 14 and a half, 15%, you're looking at a wine that's, you know, you know, that's high octane. Okay. So now let's get to the other, the other side of this where you tasted, um, where you tasted the, the finished wines. Okay. So these were all wines on market. Um, okay. 17 is a hot vintage. Uh, it, it really shows as a hot vintage. 18 is as a very elegant vintage. Um, the 16 is is still considered a perfect vintage, although you know there's some pretty rugged tannins in there. The 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 wine I think that showed the most impressively uh, to me, and um, uh, there was a winery called uh, Valdangius. Uh, there's Coco Illyria. Uh, there were there were a few of them that showed off their 2014s, which is very a very interesting choice because 14, everybody will tell you is a crappy vintage, like a really just a 2021 Ontario kind of vintage, just a terrible vintage. Okay, and I thought we'd um, say challenging vintage. Challenging, sorry, no, you know you get you corner a winemaker and they'll tell you it was terrible now that it's way over and you're eight years from that time yeah they'll go yeah it's terrible when they're not trying to sell the wine anymore they're just they just now they're pouring it and there is some re- now i i know you're not a big fan of of uh, aged wine okay now these wines show their age okay. in fact they they taste and smell older than the eight years gives them but they're really well balanced. They're really, uh, they, there's some great flavor. They are, there's some really great, uh, again, I'm going to use the word elegance to them. They taste older than they should. They probably taste like they're 10 or 15 years old. But they, if you have in your cellar a 2014 Sagrantino, I would recommend that over the next year to two years that you go down and drink that wine because any winemaker that I spoke to, they said they don't have long to live, but right now is the time to drink them. So any other standouts? Okay, any standouts that are coming to the Ontario market? Or are there any producers that you're really in love with? Uh, I mean, what's, what's, I guess, what's, what's to look forward to down here in, in Ontario? Well, I, I never know what the LCBO is going to bring in. That's, that's the problem. Uh, I, I know that you can get Bocale in Ontario. His stuff is very good. Uh, Coco Liria, she's uh, she's a very small producer, uh, a one-woman show. Like, uh, she's 42, started the winery about uh, eight years ago, wanted to, you know, live a dream that her, I think her parents had, and boom, she started it. Uh, and um, her stuff is, is really good, uh, although I don't think we're going to see it in Ontario for, for quite a bit of time. Um, uh, tonight, I tried to look at Di Tomase or something like that, and his wines were very good. But again, I, I do not know what the LCBO ever thinks about bringing in, um, and and it's it's hard to say, uh, you know, to look for something because you never know what they're going to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna publish the notes in the next month or two. Um, you know, I'm gonna have a good, better, best potential, and then I'll also have some scores for stuff that's out now in the market. 
Uh, and if you see them, if you look through the notes and you see them, you know, obviously, depending on the score, you know, pick them up. Interesting. Okay. So now let's get down to the other part because there's a thing I love about the travel. And I also think it's something that you and I don't, I don't think we do enough justice about. But I think a big part of the, the travel aspect of the job is, is you and I are fans of the, the tourism aspect that goes around it. Um, before you signed on, like when I called you uh, a D bag, like going behind the curtain as you were bragging about the size of the hotel room that you were in. And you touched on that a little bit. Um, but like, what's, what's the, what's the tourism situation there? Have you eaten gelato every day? Like you did on your last trip to Italy? Do you know what? Here's the sad part. Uh, there is a gelateria about a block down from my, my hotel. Okay. Of course there is. And the two times that I have tried to go, they're closed. <laughs> I don't understand why you're closed at lunch hour. Like that seems like a perfect time where you're going to sell gelato, but you know, after somebody's had lunch, they're going to have a little gelato, but they're closed. I, I don't, I don't get it. Um, but Montefalco is a beautiful little town. It's a, it is a, it is a town, um, or, or more like a hamlet, you know, uh, it's, it's surrounded by a wall. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, they have the, the, the town square, uh, they have four or five roads that lead down uh, to various parts of, of the town or the hamlet. That's five thousand people. I think it's five thousand people. So I think that's more of a more of a town. It's it's it, and it's and it's 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 pretty, but um, you know, there's 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 some really nice restaurants, um, uh, but it's all you know, it's all local foods. Um, this is also a place for really good olive oil. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I haven't I haven't been able to put my hands on any quite yet. But uh, as I said, I'm, I'm going to Orvieto and I'm going to uh, Tresemina. Um, and and then here's the interesting part: we should maybe talk uh, from Tresemina uh, because that is the gamay capital of Italy. I'm looking forward. Actually, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you learn there. And I know, as a rule, you generally don't bring a ton of wine back with you, but. Um, I think we could even spare the duty if you bring a couple bottles of Italian Gamay back because it would make an interesting podcast and maybe an excuse to bring Shiraz Madiar back onto the podcast to taste that, that, those ones and talk about them. That, that, that might be interesting. Put it this way. I, I, I guess I've got to find a good one. And who knows? Maybe maybe uh, it's a point where you know Gamay should not be made in Italy. Like uh, uh, as I was talking to somebody here, I don't think Pinot Noir in Italy is a, is a real – you know, draw for me, and I don't know what what other people think, but uh, there were quite a few uh, uh, journalists who were like, "Yeah, Pinot Noir in Italy, not a good, not a good combination." Ah, but I mean, there's a market. There is a market for everything. If the locals are drinking it, like good, good for them. But it's the same thing with a lot of wineries in California as well, who are making really, really warm, high alcohol Pinot, and it's just. You know, it's just something you and I aren't a, aren't a fan of, but I think it's also reflective of the market that we're in, and also the wines that we like to drink. But anyways, yeah. I digress. This, this would have been a trip you would have been very disappointed in, Andre. There was there was no not a Chardonnay to be seen. <laughs> uh, we are actually recording this on Chardonnay Day. I'm about to yeah. go downstairs and grab a bottle of Chilean and Ontario from the fridge to take my Instagram photo and decide what I'm going to open as Captain Chardonnay. But I think on this note, we um, it's pretty late there. What time is it? Isn't it like uh, 1 a.m., 2 a.m.? It's uh, almost 1 o'clock. Oh, what? It's way past your bedtime. In in the morning, yes. It's almost yeah. your. It's actually almost your bedtime in Ontario at 7 p.m. Yes, that's probably very true, yeah. 
Like uh, seven o'clock, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to uh, wanted to add to this? I I just I just you know I I, I here's some here's some thought or food for thought, and I, I've talked to a few winemakers about it. Um, one of the big big things, or one of the big I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a a, a quandary they have is you know how to and I think everybody always has this quandary is how to get more money for my wine and um uh what i was was telling them here uh um to the few winemakers that i that i did get to talk to uh that i think the idea of cru and clo uh which are, are obviously burgundian um notions uh is sweeping over the wine landscape as far as i'm concerned and mm-hmm. what i see um you know uh, like Chianti Classico is breaking down into subzones. Um, Vino Nobile in Tuscany is also breaking down into subregions and subzones. Uh, and I think maybe Sagrantino uh, should be looking at breaking themselves down into subzones, close, single vineyards, because I think that's what people are interested in. They're not as interested in, you know, just the wide. Sagrantino, they, I, I, people are interested in a certain specific piece of terroir, a certain piece of land, you know, these five vineyards, these two rows, something like that. So they have to start looking into their terroir and seeing if there is really a difference that, uh, that they make in certain areas of, of um, Antofalco. Uh, I, 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 I do like having the conversation, but I, I, I think... The other simpler answer, I mean, there's, there's, I guess I have a theory, especially where I'm sitting, especially with my new job as well, is you need to invest a bit into your, into your marketing and your outreach. The fact that there's journalists in Montefalco right now is, is great. I mean, that's a good start to help people get the word out. The other thing is to make better, better wine to be able to raise the the price up. And as you get known, you create the demand, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds with, um, with putting in like a Grand Cru system. And it's the same thing too, where like, I think Michael, you and I know in Ontario, like there are definitely some parcels of land where consistently year in and year out, the quality of the fruit is just outstanding, regardless of vintage conditions. You know, that whole stretch of land from Westcott going through Flat Rock that goes down to the Artera lands, like that's definitely a special parcel of land. The Lowry Vineyard in uh, St. David's Bench is another special parcel of land. Um, but I hate the fact that when you're talking about like monopole vineyards or you get to the point where, you know, access to good fruit and the prestige only goes to people wealthy enough to afford the afford the lands when it's already a very tricky game to get into the wine business. I don't know. It's it's I guess the bleeding heart lefty in me that wants to make sure that a rising tide floats all ships and that you're not excluding other people who have the potential to rise up by geographically picking people who are making or who, who have the ability to make good wine, you know? Well, I, I think that anybody who is making wine here can, can do some kind of investigations into their, into their winery, uh, such as I was at Lungarati, and they have uh, Sagrantino planted at the front of their property, and there's a road that goes between it. And I said, there's a left side and a right side. Have you ever vinified them separately? Just to see if there's a difference between the left side and the right side of your road. You know, there are some people who are only, you know, they only have six hectares. Well, do you, do you vinify any of your hectares separately or you just throw everything into the same barrel? 
there, there's got to be a way to uh, look at your vineyard in a different way. Um, even if you think you have the same soil uh, through your whole vineyard, there's there's got to be a way to check out a couple of rows that you think are better. There's always a good a good viticulturalist knows which rows work better. They know which vines produce better grapes, um, and they always use them as the the bellwether of of that vintage or of that uh, uh, of, of that uh, of the wine that is going to be made. And and I think that you know if you just invest a little bit of the time, I think you could probably uh, find a way to make crews of of the places that are already there. And 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 look at this. Put it this way. Any any winemaker could make two different Sagrantino. One is their basic, and one is their, you know, this is our special selection parcel. And we call it Bella Terra, or whatever they want to call it. Interesting. No, uh, I think it's actually a very, uh, very insightful and a, 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 a deep thought from Michael at 1 a.m. in Italy. This is when I have my most deep thoughts. I'm just usually sleeping. No, that's great. Well, actually, I actually I have nothing to say in response to that, but I frankly agree with what you said in approach. Like, it's it's definitely a great way to help establish and and raise the profile of a region, and it also should help help the locals develop their own roadmap to success by seeing what works in what sites, what are the soil conditions, and work backwards from there. So, uh, I mean, good job, Michael. Hopefully, people from uh, Montefalco are listening to this. Look, uh, Thomas Batchelder has been doing it in Ontario, right? He, totally. You know, I don't know how many Gamays, how many Pinots he's he's now up to, but he's trying different vineyards just for the sake of trying them and giving them names. And now suddenly, all these vineyards have you know prestige because one Thomas is 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 making wine from them because he is determined that maybe this patch of land is different than somebody else's patch of land, and and we are getting you know more vineyards getting named on wine bottles than ever before. And, and, and the best part is none of them are labeled as Grand Cru or Premier Cru, which you don't have to do that. You just need a single vineyard with hundred percent. And I think that goes to what I was saying earlier about not creating an exclusionary system that you need to win a lottery to be, to be a part of. So, I mean, that's, that's that's why I said, that's why I said it's, it's, it's a crew system or a closed system. And I think the closed system being, you know, certain parcels of land probably works better for most than a, than a crew system, which, you know, you know, tells them premier crew, you know, deuxième crew. Yeah. yeah gotcha. Crew. So, yeah. um, on this note, I'm Andre Peru from AndreWineReview.ca. I'm, I'm cutting this off ab- ab- abruptly because I actually have many other things to, many other things to do. You have a day job. <laughs> yeah. And I'm exhausted all the time. Uh, but yeah, at Andre Wine Review, and I'm actually um, doing a, a tasting of the new When Pigs Fly Rosé with um, some people from Instagram tonight. I know you haven't had a chance to taste it for your Rosé report yet, but uh, any winemakers or wineries that are uh, listening to this podcast right now, Michael is still looking for bottles of Rosé to put together his now infamous Rosé report. It's quite ambitious. He usually tastes uh, quite a few wines and has changed the um, the approach and the scoring system this year, which I think as a consumer is I'm actually very much looking for the good, better, best options. Well, thank you, Andre. I'm, I, I like that plug. Uh, I'm Michael Pincus uh, from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. 
from Montefalco, Italy. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the grape guy and, uh, Michael Pincus on Facebook. Uh, there's quite a few pictures going up and, uh, I think I'm getting into this, this story thing, Andre. Well, there you go. Uh, take us away, Michael, as it's, uh, as it's pretty late there. Uh, well, it's actually morning, but I'm going to have to say it. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.